0: Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum. Today I'll be speaking with author Margaret George, who has just released a new book, The Splendor Before the Dark. How's it going today, Margaret?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm doing really well. Uh, Are you calling from New York right now?
1: No, I'm in Wisconsin.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, you have a real winter up there.
1: (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) Yeah, We we had a little bit of snow um, a couple of days ago.
0: Oh, nice. Uh, well, that, that's good. Not a bad thing. Not too deep into yeah. it yet, I hope.
1: No, no, no. Well, it's gone already.
0: So, <laughs> Well, good. Well, well, to kind of dive into this, um, your, your new book focuses on a similar subject to your last book, The Confessions of Young Nero, uh, about the Roman Emperor Nero. And I, I'm wondering how you got interested in that historical figure in the first place.
1: Well, I had done the book about uh, the memoirs of Cleopatra. And, of course, the cast of characters in that were, you know, the Romans, Antony and Octavian, the bitter enemies. And Nero is a descendant of both of them. And it's kind of like the story continued. You know, it's like what happened 100 years later uh, in the Rome that that, uh, Antony and Octavian had been... Uh, dealing with, and Octavian set up the empire, so it was kind of a natural extension. Plus, of course, he's just an unforgettable kind of a character. Uh, there's only one Nero.
0: <laughs> it's true, and it, that that kind of historical reputation has stayed over the years. Um, some of it kind of blown out of proportion. Uh, what was it like kind of researching the book and uh, kind of piercing through the myth in a lot of ways?
1: Well, you know, uh, luckily, uh, more modern historians are able to kind of see through or read between the lines of the three surviving main sources we have about Nero, and unfortunately, they're uniformly hostile to him, um, probably because they they were written in the next um, time period, the next dynasty that succeeded succeeded him, and so whenever a new administration comes in, of course, they want to undo what the last one did and say it was terrible and no, aren't you glad we're here? So Nero got the full treatment from, <laughs> from Tacitus and Suetonius and then later from Dio Cassius. And the the ones that were favorable to him didn't survive. We know they exist because another historian, Josephus, um, told us about them. He said, well, there are these positive ones and then these negative ones, and, and you have to balance them. But, but bad luck for Nero, the positive ones didn't survive. So... Um, you know, it was kind of a detective work job to to try to undo. You know, fake news is not unique to our time; yeah. they had it then too. But how do you how do you you know combat it? I don't know. It was so it was a real challenge, but it was it was a it was a fun challenge.
0: No, oh, I can imagine that. You know, it's funny. Like looking at Roman history, Nero has his reputation; everybody knows his name, but he's not even arguably. Even from his critics, the worst Roman emperor that there ever was. There were significantly worse people after him and some before him.
1: Yeah, you know, he was mainly attacked. I think because he was seen he saw himself as an artist. Hmm. And and I, I, I think that he truly was an artist and you know, but that it made him seem silly, it made him seem like a buffoon. It made him a figure of fun. Um and I think, you know, the other emperors that you know, that would execute people for cheering for the wrong team or or persecute people. He wasn't like that, but he did become a butt of jokes, especially later jokes. <laughs> and then, hence the thing about fiddling while Rome burned, and you know that he was so frivolous. The idea was that he would stand up and watch a city burn and just want to compo- you know, sing his, his ode to Troy. Uh, the, so he really, he really kind of left himself open to such ridicule by choosing to emphasize the art so much.
0: I get that. and it, It's interesting that you have made a career in writing about uh, historical figures and kind of deep diving into their heads and their times. What, what's your favorite aspect of, of getting to really dig underneath these people and the ways that they lived and how they were perceived?
1: Well, I think that the joy of it is feeling like that you're kind of restoring them, you know, like those... those, those um, uh, painting renovators and they they get off all the varnish and they and they reverse the 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 renovations that were sometimes mistakenly done before that made the problem worse and and they peel off all these layers and they finally have before them you know the way the artist painted it and I guess that that's the way I feel is that if you it is it is a, a joy to try to restore the person to what he was before um, now of course that may be just hubris on my part. I mean, (laughs) that I'm able to do that, but it's kind of a fantasy anyway of a a writer like me.
0: No, I I get that. Um, Whenever restoring something or or adapting something to your own time, you bring with it uh, the modern times cultural baggage or understandings of things, um, and and, and way of even telling narratives. Um, What what do you think about that, that idea, and how do you navigate that, keeping the times kind of true to, to themselves and the people true to themselves, while also making it understander, understandable to a modern narrative.
1: Well, that's a real trick. I mean, you're absolutely right, and, and it's especially glaring that you see in movies. I mean, you can, you can tell what time period a historical movie was made in, I mean, by the makeup of the hairdo of the women, even if they're supposed to be in ancient Rome. <laughs> The so 1950s one or you know you can tell when they were made and, all, and and you can't help it you you know people um you do live in your time you, you're 2000 years removed and i try to respect their uh, the things that they believed and for example like with the Mary Magdalene book um there you know she supposedly had seven demons and jesus cast them out and then after she was Rid of the demons. That's when she began to follow him. So, like modern people, don't necessarily believe in demonic possession. Well, some people do, but (laughs) but generally, you know, they want to find other explanations for it. Like, well, men don't like strong women and that kind of thing. But I think you have to respect the fact that they, or I did, that they believed in it. She believed in it. Jesus apparently believed in it because he spent a lot of time casting out demons. So. Therefore, I had to have real demon possession. And that's what I mean. I didn't want to put a modern interpretation on it. Well, it was really this. It was really epilepsy. It was really, you know. So I think um, there's a lot of that, that you have a choice between, are you going to go with what they thought and believed at the time, or are you going to overlay um, your own your own feeling? Well, if they didn't think that, they ought to have. Yeah. They ought to have known better than that, you know.
0: No, I think that's important. That's interesting that you kind of made that decision to go in that direction. Um, How was it uh, in the researching process of, like, demonic lore and stuff and trying to get into people's heads at that time?
1: Well, it was... Uh, yeah, you know, there's there is some there is a lot of, written about it, but I was extremely fortunate in that I actually got to interview a real exorcist. Oh wow. Um that someone introduced he she knew I was writing this book and she happened to know him and, and she kind of had to vouch for me that I was not gonna write some expose about him. Um and I could ask him these questions like, you know, how do you know that someone's possessed and and how do you drive out the demons and and what's the technique and how do you know they're gone <laughs> All this, it was it was really fascinating um so uh I mean, you know, he, he's a practicing exorcist. I guess he has a lot of customers. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... But, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, I don't think I would be able to do it myself. But <laughs> but it gave me a handle on, on what it's like and, and the people who, who really confront this or think they do, you know, um, in even in our time.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, is there a historical figure that you've always wanted to tackle but just can't figure Out quite how to do it.
1: Well, yes, Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, (laughs) wow! Yeah, who could ever explain Poe? Um, I feel I feel a kinship with Poe because we were born on the same day. So, and I and I love his stories. And you know, he seems in a way very modern. It's hard to believe that he lived. He was born in eighteen (laughs) oh seven. That he didn't even live to see the Civil War. But how in the world? Would you be would anybody be able to really capture poe i I don't know I mean, I'd love to try, but then i've you know I've been to a lot of his houses and I've read his works and I've read his biographies but oh my goodness i I don't know it maybe too much
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting um regarding kind of getting a feeling for for ancient Rome in these books about Nero. Um, what were the most influential like histories or, or cultural histories that you read that really helped you get a feel for what it was like
1: uh, Well you know there are the three basic texts uh, of not the time but the ancient texts of Tacitus um, who uh, was probably the best historian in ancient Rome. He, he's the most, the most reliable. He can be tricky because he has biases. And then Suetonius, who was kind of the National inquirer of his day and has, has all these juicy things, all those juicy things that were in I Claudius, you know, Suetonius. Uh, and then there's one that was written about 150 years after that that kind of borrows from those two. But I think uh, with modern ones, there was actually the best one, of all things was a book written I think it was published in 1910 by by a a man named Tucker um and it it just had all these um I had to get it from a used bookstore and I'm so thankful and I'm going to pull pull it out here it's right here in this it was I was so thankful that it was still it's called Life in the Roman World of Nero and St Paul mm. and it has wonderful illustrations okay um it's by T. G. Tucker. Hmm. Um, illustrations of all kinds of things of, of of everyday life. And I mean, I really got such texture out of that book. Interesting. Um, it was kind of invaluable, and you know it was it was um, actually reprinted digitally, but they left the illustrations <laughs> out. Oh. So, so he would be talking about how you're seated at a banquet. And, and he, would, he would have a diagram of it, but they left the diagram out of the digital one, which is why I had to try to find a real printed one that had all that in there. That was good. But, you know, there are, there are later ones. There's, there was a, there's a historian called um, Edward Champlin who's, uh, at Princeton who wrote a biography of Nero. It was kind of a psychobiography of him. Hmm. And that was really helpful. He, he wanted to, you know, explore how he really thought. And it, and and really kind of shown light on a lot of the things that that there are question marks about. But he w- he would find uh, explanations and motivations for him that that um, other historians haven't. And he was very persuasive.
0: Well, I could see that. That's interesting. That's great to have that that those resources at your at your uh, beck and call. You know, when you're writing this. Um, well, to kind of wrap us up, Margaret, I uh, was wondering what you're reading right now, and also what are some projects that you're working on at the moment?
1: Oh, okay, I'll try to be really, really quick. Um, <laughs> I, a lot, along with history, I'm reading a book called The Black Death <laughs> oh, wow. by, by a man named John Hatcher, who's a historian, but he also tried to write it sort of like, like a docudrama. Mm. Um, and anyway, it's very interesting about how these people coped with it. He said, there's not much written about how ordinary people, what ha- how they felt about it. And uh, as for other projects, I said, I guess I have to give up on Poe, but but I am interested in doing something about America and in, in probably the early times in America. When we first were becoming, you know, American and, and developing our own character, like in, you know, in, in frontier Kentucky and Tennessee and places like that, um, you know, uh, the first generation beyond you know the the ones that were so influenced by being colonialists in, um, you know, related to England. So you know how, how did how did we get Davy Crockett out of Benjamin Franklin? <laughs> how did how did we evolve from the Benjamin Franklins into the Davy Crockett's? It's kind of I think that would be really interesting. i have been trying to learn more about it. Um, how you know the whole the whole development of that.
0: Interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to a hopeful hopeful book on, on that. that. That sounds fascinating.
1: Is there any particular character there that you would like to
0: know about? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, there's so many. I honestly would love um, maybe some sort of uh, mixture of, of folks because just we don't get enough of a focus on Individuals that are, you know, have you seen like, uh, or read the Revenant, like, you know, like 1836 in the yeah, wilderness? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I, I love those ideas of those people that are not like covered in any historical text that are out there doing that and mm-hmm. build, having these battles and dealing with these identity issues and, and struggles. I'd love to hear about those stories, the ones that haven't been really told. So if you find a figure like that, I, I'd love to read it.
1: That would be great. Well, thank you. No, I really, I always appreciate ideas, um, uh, especially ones that I've asked for. So, um, well, thank you. I know you have to wrap this up, and people can find more about me if they, I have a website. That's www.margaretgeorge.com, and I'm also on Facebook. Uh, if they just look up Margaret George author, I post more recent stuff, or, or, or you know, pictures of things I've seen, and so on about Nero things. And so, you know, if people want to know more, they can go there. No oh,
0: fun. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for again for being on here, Margaret. It's been such a uh, pleasure talking to you.
1: It has been very pleasant. I could go on for hours. I can imagine. I
0: can imagine. Me too. Um, But uh, thank you. Thank you again. That was Margaret George, author of the book, The Splendor Before the Dark. Up next, we'll be speaking to author Winston Groom, author of Forrest Gump and most recently, The Allies, Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, and the unlikely alliance that won World War II. Take a listen. How's it going today, Winston? Winston? Fine. Thank you for having me on. Oh Of course. Uh, glad, to, uh, glad to hear you. And I know you're going to be coming to the World War II Museum in New Orleans on December 11th. I'll be there. Oh, fantastic. And what exactly are you going to be doing down here?
2: Oh, I'll be a part of the exhibit. <laughs> They'll take me up there with a tank or something. <laughs> well, that's I'm good. Gonna, I'm going to be making a talk. Oh, I, actually, I'm not sure what the format is, um, but they're... Um, they're very good. I've done this before at the museum, and they're very professional. And uh, they have a good crowd. I think that there's a uh, cocktail reception beforehand, and, and I do my thing, and afterwards I sign my books.
0: Well, that's not a bad deal, then. Well, well, great. Well, Winston, you've written about military figures in history before, and you yourself were in the military in Vietnam and I'm wondering, what about these three men really made you want to dive in and start writing this book?
2: Well, they represented, as Churchill pointed out at the Tehran Conference, uh, the greatest collection of political power in the history of the world. These three guys, and you know, they they were fighting a mighty uh, alliance against democracy and decency in the Axis. And they prevailed, and uh, it just struck me that it was the, the these guys. I mean, none of them really trusted one another. Uh, Roosevelt despised empires, and of course, the British had the greatest empire uh, on earth. And uh, he, Roosevelt, was concerned that they'd try to reassemble it after the war was over. And Churchill was a little bit suspicious of Roosevelt that he wasn't. Fully committed to the cause, and Stalin didn't trust anybody, including himself. <laughs> so he said. So the three of them were were, were a rather unlikely bunch. I mean, they were uh, communism was anathema to democracy, and Roosevelt and, and Churchill were uh, presiding over democracies, and uh, it it it, it was just an interesting sort of a. Uh, group of three people who were charged with uh, putting down uh, one of the great disturbances of the 20th century.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. And, you know, these are men who have been um, mythologized in a lot of ways and, you know, kind of had their Ds brought to this higher plane. And I'm wondering, you know, you trying to dive into this historical aspect, how hard was it for you to kind of separate this myth from the actual person in front of you?
2: Well, it's not that hard if you apply yourself. Uh, historically, uh, you know, there's a lot of research that goes into these things, and you can pretty well, I think, get to the to the bottom of it. But I'm not sure that there was a lot of uh, false myth, uh, if you put it that way, attached to any of these these three. There were some some smaller aspects that that. People uh, perhaps had gotten wrong over time, but um, I think in the in the end, it's it's pretty simple. Stalin was he wasn't the easiest study because he of course had his own history <laughs> that he uh, promulgated, uh, and anybody who deviated from his own history was exterminated, and so very few people did that. And uh, so after the war, though um and after the soviet union broke down in the 1990s um it was a bit easier to get information on stalin he he made up a lot of things about himself that weren't true for instance he uh, he liked to tell that he was exiled to siberia oh i don't know a dozen times and in fact uh, three times can be can be documented but he said he he escaped uh Heroically, after being chased by wolves and having to swim icy rivers and shot at by Cossacks and so forth, and in fact, the first time he he uh, escaped, his mother sent him train fare on the Siberian Express, and he thumbed a ride on a sleigh into the town (laughs) in Siberia, boarded the train and got back to uh, to civilization. He was caught again and sent back up there, and um, the. The Siberian exile in Stalin's early years under the czar wasn't at all like it was under himself, which, uh, in which people were sent to Siberia by his administration and never to return. Uh, in the days of the czars, it was simply a way of getting you out of the way, and they actually gave you a stipend uh, for... Uh, and food and clothing and rent, and transported you up to somewhere, wherever you're supposed to be, what little village there was, yeah. and you were put in uh, in Stalin's case in the House of Political, uh, Political Exiles, as opposed to the House of Criminal Exiles. But he was expelled from the House of Political Exiles <laughs> for, uh, when it came time to... To, for him to do the dishes, he simply put the dishes on the floor and let the dogs lick them clean. And so he was thrown out, and they sent him to the, the criminal house then, which he said was uh, he, he preferred because the criminals were more honest than the political exiles. <laughs> So these were these were just some of the little things you learn along the
0: way. They were interesting. I can see that. You know, it's interesting because you know you can dive into those stories and like talk fondly of Stalin in a way, right? Because it, it's funny and interesting. Uh, but it's also you have to reckon with like dealing with histories like this. Like these are deeply flawed individuals. In Stalin's case, killing millions of people, right? Um, yeah. How how do you
2: like personally? Yeah, the, yeah. the death of one man is a. Is a tragedy the death of a million men is a statistic?
0: Yeah, exactly. But how how did you like writing these books and in your previous books, uh, talking about really troubling events and, and persons, kind of balance the interesting, kind of exciting tidbits of you know, oh, these are historical figures that lived long ago, with like, oh, there are actually horrific things that happened here.
2: Well, I mean, it's just like any kind of writing. I you know, I, I'm basically a novelist by Profession and uh, I enjoy writing histories. And when I don't have a great idea for a novel, that's what I do. Uh, and it's just a matter of balance. Uh, you try to give everybody uh, their due. And of course, as you point out, Stalin was a was a great monster. I mean, he was one of the great monsters. He might have even been worse than Hitler. Uh, there's no telling how many people he killed, but it was up to the tens of millions, and that was his own people. And, uh, and it's rather ironic that today we're, we seem to be obsessed with the Saudis, Saudi Arabians killing one man. Uh, Stalin killed millions, and we were fully in bed with him uh, all during the war, and the, the Roosevelt administration had old you know, books written about how great life was in Russia, and they had films made of it, and even had cartoons with Uncle Joe, Mm -hmm. Uncle Joe Stalin, uh, trying to make him out as a good fellow. And, uh, you know, it was a political expedient, and I point that out. Uh, We, You know, we had a war to win against some pretty vicious people, and, uh, you know, you did what you had to do.
0: Yeah, strange bedfellows, which is which is hard, and it's interesting to think about. Like you know, you're writing on a personal level with these people, and thinking about, as you mentioned before, the 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 biggest concentration of power in probably world history, uh, and these three people representing that. And a lot of it comes down to if they trust each other, and if they even like each other, and want to work together with each other. That's got to be so interesting to kind of dive into.
2: Well, yeah, and and they they did they cooperated. I mean, Stalin was a very difficult customer to uh, to deal with. He he made a, a lot of demands on the United States because we well, the United States put him in what they called the lend-lease program, which was essentially uh, where the U.S. simply gave him uh, untold billions worth of armaments in tanks and guns and planes and you know, all sorts of military equipment, which we shipped over to uh, the Soviet Union across the Atlantic at great expense, uh, especially during the first part of the war, where the Germans had their submarines out and sank our ships and uh, killed a lot of our, our people, just, just getting him these things. But he he didn't... Plead for them. He demanded them, he threatened to. Uh, it, it was a veiled threat, but he threatened to. Well, if you don't get them, uh, will Russia will cave into the Germans, the Germans will take us, and then uh, take all of Europe. Um, so he he was he was hard to deal with, but uh, both Churchill and Roosevelt dealt with him best they could, and <laughs> we got we got through it somehow.
0: Yeah, somehow. Um... What was kind of your favorite scene to write in this book, you know, kind of diving in? What did you enjoy learning about the most and, and kind of writing about then?
2: Oh, I, you know, I think what I bring to the historical subject is, being a novelist, I see little things that perhaps a trained historian who's been teaching this stuff for 40 years might be tempted to skip over, and I, I just find various little things interesting. For instance, in in Roosevelt's case, he, he was sent off to boarding school when he was a teenager to Groton, which is an Episcopal boys' school in Massachusetts, where the preferred uh, punishment for misbehavior was, guess what? Waterboarding. Mm. That's what they did. They did it for 30 or 40 years there. Nobody thought anything about it. It's a federal crime. And in Stalin's case, he studied for the priesthood until he was 16 years old when he was expelled from divinity school. (laughs) And he then became a fundraiser for Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks, who became the communists. In the Russian Revolution. And by fundraiser, I mean he staged bank robberies, murders, extortion, uh, various criminal activities uh, in order to to get money to give to to, uh, Lenin. And uh, in Churchill's case, you know, you you look at Churchill, most people, and they see this figure of a pudgy little old man. uh, But that wasn't uh, always the case with Churchill. He was... He was, in fact, the he he went to the British version of West Point, which is Sandhurst, the British Military Academy, and became, in fact, one of the best polo players in England.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, that's fascinating, yeah. Um, He
2: went off to to fight. He was in the cavalry, and he went off to fight in what is now Afghanistan. Uh, It was part of India then, in the mountains. And... Fought against these same exact tribes, the great grandfathers and grandfathers of the same people we're fighting here today.
0: <laughs> A continuum, you right know, there. Fanatic,
2: f- fanatics, religious fanatics, and uh, very uh, uh, brave and bold and vicious uh, tribesmen.
0: Oh, interesting. Well, and then he went to man
2: and fought more fanatics, <laughs> and he became the world's highest-paid uh, war correspondent. Oh, wow. When he was young, and he parlayed that into a seat in Parliament, and uh, his career then took off.
0: Oh, interesting. Well, Winston, we we gotta we gotta get going pretty soon. Uh, but I did want to ask you one last question, uh, just very sh- briefly. Uh, what are you reading right now?
2: I'm reading. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal.
0: Oh, that's not a bad thing. Any any books though?
2: Oh, uh, well, actually, I'm reading a book called The Looming War, which was, is about the Civil War. Uh, the, the events leading up to it. It's a good book. Uh, it's interesting. All right.
0: well, good. Uh, we'll take, take your word for it then. Um, Winston, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
2: Well, thanks for having me on.
0: Of course. That was Winston Groom, author of The Allies, Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, and the unlikely alliance that won World War II. And before that, we had novelist Margaret on speaking about her latest book, The Splendor in the Dark. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. Our show airs every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This program, as well as WRBH's other interview programs and our entire archive, can be found on WRBH's SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash WRBH reading radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.